You're listening to the Names Not Numbers podcast, the annual ideas festival produced by Editorial Intelligence. Diplomacy and its discontents, soft power. Chaired by Dr. Anthony Selden, polymath and master of Wellington College. I'd just like to uh, put this uh, discussion in context. We had a, a scintillating discussion this morning on diplomacy and its uh, problems and hard power, a sense that uh, hard power maybe can't solve the problems in the 21st century, if indeed it ever could, successfully in the, 20, in the 20th century with uh, sanctions, with uh, rigid diplomacy, uh, with boots on the ground. So what is the space then for soft power, this notion coined by Joseph Nye in first 1990 and then 2004 in his book on the subject again, uh, the sense that you have to co-opt rather than coerce. So this is very much a session where you're going to be participating. So just a question to you, a pretty, um, uh, pretty limited question, but have a go at it. Would you sooner see uh, the West using more soft power in this next 10-year period? Who thinks there's more space for the West using soft power? And who is sceptical about the use of soft power? And, uh, okay, so lots of don't knows there. And I'm just going to come in now with the panel and uh, ask them the first question. And I'm going to turn to Matthew Kirk at the left. And uh, do you think, Matthew, that the Foreign Office, which you left uh, eight years ago, and I'm assuming that you all know who everybody is, uh, but I'll introduce our two new panellists in a moment when they come up. Uh, do you think the Foreign Office, in fact, has failed? Is there a, a purpose anymore in the 21st century for a Foreign Office with all the diplomatic missions all around the world? Wouldn't it just be much better, say, if the British Council took over or Sadie took over? I think it's much harder to define the purpose for a, an institution like the Foreign Office uh, in today's world than it was uh, during the Cold War, where it, there was a clarity. I would say there was an awful clarity, and I certainly I'm not one of those who has any sense of nostalgia for the Cold War. But I think that the, the idea that communication can all be done somehow remotely through third parties or through technology simply doesn't work. I find this in my own job now, where in many ways I'm still a diplomat. I'm just not doing it for a country. You need to talk to people. Um, and having the right vehicle to talk to people is a critical part of what you have a foreign office for. So, 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 so what is it that talking to somebody, what is it that being in the same room as somebody gives you that uh, uh, electronic communications doesn't? I mean, in the, in the era when the prime minister can just talk to Obama by videotape conferences all the time, what, what is the role? I think, I think there is and we found this during the Cold War, there is, as you get to know people as people rather than as representatives of another institution, you reduce the distance between you and you make it more possible to explore where the common ground is in the middle. If you're, if you're in broadcast mode, you necessarily amplify the distance. That's what broadcast does. Uh, it's about distance communication. If you're able to come close, if you're able actually to feel what the other person is feeling and why they're feeling it, you have a much greater chance to explore how you might take a step forward together. The step forward together 
might well not resolve the problem, but it might start to create a bit of trust, and with that trust, it's very hard to resolve anything. So what you're saying is uh, that, that, that you go native, or as Mrs. Mrs. Thatcher would say, that's the whole problem with you diplomats, you just go native. <laughs> what, what's your response to that line? I, I, I don't think many do go native, actually. I think that the... Uh, the role of a diplomat is a two-way interpretative role. You have to interpret uh, the country into which you're representing or the organization into which you're representing back into your own government, and that does sometimes give the impression that you've gone native, but at the same time, you're portraying Britain, uh, the British government, the British government's priorities and so forth into the country in which you are, uh, and they will often feel that as quite a, a significant push um, in a direction they don't necessarily want to go to. So, um, in a sense, you're, you're beloved of neither side. You're an intermediary sitting in the middle. Um, but I do think it's a, it's a very important role to have. I don't think it's only necessarily played by representatives of governments, though. I think there are lots of examples of people who have this role of building bridges, uh, some of them in a sort of structural way, in NGOs and so forth, some of them footballers, okay. actors. I will, we'll come on to those in just a moment. So, Martin Davison, how many tanks does the British Council have? Well, you sound like Lord Breathebrook. He, asked, <laughs> uh, he, he famously said that uh, 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 all the medicals the British Council sent around the world weren't worth a single squadron of Spitfires. Um, I think he thought Spitfires were rather cheaper than they actually are or were. Um, I think the big problem we often have with this is we start from trying to create a, a, an opposition between soft power and hard power which is an absolute nonsense. The most important thing to recognise is that all major nations seek to operate across a wide continuum of international relationships, of which hard power, force, military engagement is one, aid and humanitarian support is, if you like, at the other end, and in the middle there is a whole host of creating contacts and connections and relationships between people, which is hugely powerful. And say, but you would say that, wouldn't you? Well, it, it, well I would because it's true. But, um, uh, and, and how do you measure <laughs> your effectiveness? Well, I I mean, you're spending an awful lot of money. I know you're going to tell us that 85% of the money the British Council spends uh, is uh, generated through commercial activities, but you're still having a lot of government money. Well, we get, we get a, a, a significant sum of government money, about uh, a tenth of what the French or the Germans spend on the same thing and about a thirtieth of what the uh, China is now spending. Um, and I think the question, is it effective? Um, yes, you can do a lot of hard uh, uh, surveying and there's, uh, I can quote you all sorts of numbers about the proportion of Pakistanis who trust Britain better because they've had a cultural experience and that's not about necessarily working with the British Council, but it's studying this country, it's uh, learning our language, it's coming here, it's uh, uh, building a, a cultural relationship with maybe through the arts or creativity. I can quote you other numbers, which are the, 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 the preparedness of those people then to do business with Britain. But actually, ultimately, I think it goes back to what sensible people understand. If you've studied somewhere, if you know the people, if you've uh, built a set of relationships and friendships, then that presupposes you to want to work more closely with those people, perhaps to buy things with them, to trade with them. It's pretty sensible human relationships. And I think the interesting question is not does it work, but what works most effectively? And I think that's really about what is attractive about this country. And there are some fantastically attractions. Well, obviously, and we all know that. 
Uh, but, you know, with the little money you have, you were rated, in, Britain was rated in 2013 as the second most uh, successful country in the world uh, with soft power behind, incidentally, Germany, and third was America, uh, fourth was France at spending this ten times more money, uh, and fifth was Japan. Let's come on to Harvey Goldsmith, and um, Harvey Goldsmith, you all know, uh, was... Uh, uh, desperate to get on the panel, and, and thanks, Harvey. Uh, <laughs> delighted that um, uh, delighted that, uh, that, that eventually Julia buckled. Um, have you done more for Britain's position in the world than Tony Blair? Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, you haven't invaded Iraq. What have, what have you done? What have you done for Britain? Um, the first I knew about this was about an hour and a half ago, actually, just to set the record straight. Um, simply, music is the international ambassador, even more than sport. Uh, music crosses all boundaries and crosses all creeds, all religions, all problems, all over the world. And we are, uh, and in music, generally, uh, we've probably done and created more in the terms of, as you call it, soft power in relationships with other countries than I think than anything else, uh, be it armaments or diplomacy or hard diplomacy. Furthermore, the music business is self-contained, so it doesn't take a penny from government unless government wants to meddle in it, which it does occasionally by su superficially organising kind of cultural trips um, for orchestras and whatever. But in the main, um, music is an amazing ambassador and um, I've been lucky enough to go to and pioneered many countries and taken music over there and brought music back from those countries. It's the best cultural exchange of all and it's the best opportunity to break barriers down. Which British music works best abroad and, and do bands that work best here and music that works best in the UK necessarily works abroad or not? Um, it depends on the country. For example, um, China. Um, one automatically assumed that as soon as the barriers started to open up in China that every rock band from the Rolling Stones to the Poods or whatever uh, would go to China be hugely successful. And the answer is uh, they were all failures. Uh, the reason being is because China's, the average Chinese person's ears are tuned to a different style of sound. Mm -hmm. And therefore, in China particularly, what worked there was classical music. In Japan, what worked in Japan and started to break the barriers down was actually jazz. And now they take... And, and parts of, of rock music and some pop music which are indefinable. And equally with China, as the young generation are coming through, um, one would assume that they would deal with the heritage. I, I, first, I took the first Western pop band to China in 1984, 85, I beg pardon, uh, with George Michael and Wham. And um, it was a quite strange experience. Um, <laughs> I was there. Which, yeah. yes, which... Um, ended up with, I think, the premier turning up and there was panic stations at the end. And when we first arrived in China and got to the border, they didn't know, because we played in two concerts in Hong Kong beforehand, 
They didn't know who we were, what we were, why we were there, and why there were so many of us until I started dishing out um, cassettes and T-shirts, and then they thought this was wonderful, and, of course, they let us in. Um, and, and, indeed, in 2007, with a bit of a delay, the Premier said, we've got to have more soft power in China. Yes, uh, Was Correct. that because of your visit? It, it got so much coverage and so much publicity um, because they realised that they could then allow uh, decadent Western music for the kids to go and see, and there weren't going to be riots. Going back to 1978, I, I took Elton John to Russia for the first time, um, and that was a little bit more, uh, more established and more organised because it was around the time of a, the re-signing of a biennial cultural treaty with Russia where we would get the Bolshoi and the Kirov, and they would get the Royal Ballet and the LSO or maybe the RPO or whatever. And suddenly, um, the, the Minister of Culture from Russia came over to London at a lunch at Lancaster House, turned around and said, we need to have music for the masses. And the next thing I knew, I was taking Elton John to Russia, um, which also opened a lot of doors. Baroness uh, Helena Kennedy, uh, does our legal system have anything to offer uh, countries abroad which maybe have less sophisticated uh, understandings of the rule of law. Uh, is there a role for the, our legal system in soft power? Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that um, as the globalisation um, was beginning to burgeon, um, there was a recognition by places like China, um, places like the Middle East, um, places like... Uh, um, uh, well, well, over the world, that there had to be some kind of way in which they could do business and trade, and they wanted help often with uh, developing their own commercial law base, and in fact came to the British legal system for that assistance. And, uh, and in China, I mean, I, I um, was a bit involved in all of this, but in China they were very interested in having help develop their own commercial lobbies because they knew that people would not trade unless there was going to be some way in which contractual uh, contracts would be, you know, respected and that there was some kind of, uh, uh, you know, legality that uh, would be recognised by the, by the West too. So it's been very effective and, in fact, um, now in Qatar... There is, a, there is being established a, a, a court, a commercial court, and it's British judges who are out there setting it up. And um, what a lot of people don't realise is that when commerce is, be when people are actually entering into big, huge contracts, they will often, you know, it could be between a Swedish pension plan and an American banking system, and they will end up. Uh, choosing as the place where uh, the court system that should deal with uh, any contractual um, hostilities or argument, it should be within the British law legal system. And that's because we are recognised and respected throughout the world. We've seen that our judges are not corrupt, they don't take bungs, and, uh, and in fact our system works really well. Uh, so uh, we do actually export law everywhere. Uh, and, and does the fact that way. we have this reputation uh, for objectivity and fairness in our law make us more attractive to overseas governments wanting to find out about our legal system or less? Yeah, I mean, no, absolutely more. And often, for example, often, for example, um, uh, we would be, when there was, uh, you know, uh, the, after the end of the Cold War, 
Britain was invited in mm. to help with how do we create an independent judiciary? I can't pretend to you that it's worked, but um, we certainly did a lot of work around with you know lawyers going out helping to um, you know develop law around independence of the judiciary, how to have independent legal professions, helping them set up international bar associations, that kind of thing. So law is very important. I mean, we all know the rule of law is the other limb in any democracy. If folk cannot go to a court and assert their rights, then, you know, it's absolute chaos. I've just come back from Iraq. And let me tell you, it's a mess. And one of the reasons it's a mess is because people can't, the court systems it, don't work. And women, for example, who've, you know, widowed because there's been war after war, you know, starting with the Iran-Iraq war, but over the last 30 years, lots of war, lots of widows. And they, often the families of their husbands chuck them out of their houses and claim the houses back. The women want to, to organise around this stuff but the courts are not there to help them get their rights. And so, you know, it's fundamental. And we can do that in quite a sinuous way. And I spend a lot of time doing that now. Thank you very much. And Isabel Hilton, uh, thank you for waiting patiently. Are, are China naturally our friends? Is it going to take us the entire 21st century to understand the Chinese mindset? Hardly. Um, but I think that... Uh, <laughs> Are they naturally our chance? There's a tendency to talk about China, one-fifth of humanity, as though it was one sure. homogenous mass. Uh, so to make sense of this discussion, I'd like to make a distinction between the party state and, and China. Yeah. These are not coterminous. They're not the same thing. Uh, China has a huge, rich, and wonderful culture, which ought to serve China in, in soft power terms. But the party state spent from 1949 to 1976 trying to destroy yeah. it. Um, and then has been trying since then to figure out how it might be useful uh, to serve their purposes. So the, the remark that you, uh, that you made, that in fact, it was the president, Hu Jintao, yeah. who in 2007, we need more soft power, because China yeah. perceived that there was a kind of conspiracy in the Western media against China, and that by creating their own media empire, they, they, could, they could counter the narrative. So they spent, what, $10 billion or so dollars since then, creating a worldwide global media empire. The problem that has is that, that, that in soft power, what, that the currency is, if you like, credibility mm. and authenticity. And of course, that's the problem with state-promoted uh, or state-owned or state-dominated media in any culture, yeah. and particularly in China. So the soft power that China fails to capitalize on is the, the artists, <coughs> the independent writers, the musicians, those, all, all of those people who do generate culture um, and, and whom the with whom the state has a very ambivalent relationship. So China has had, what, 12 Nobel Prize winners, and it wasn't until Mo Yen won the Literature Prize in 2012 that it had had a Nobel Prize winner who wasn't either in forced or voluntary exile or in prison. So two Nobel Prize winners, you might think hooray for China, one's the Dalai Lama and one's Liu Xiaobo, who's currently <laughs> serving 15 years yeah. for making the outrageous suggestion that the Chinese state should obey its own constitution. So China shoots itself in the foot all, mm. all the time. Its most famous contemporary artist in the West, uh, you know, Ai Weiwei. Yeah. Uh, first, they beat him up, practically mm. give him brain damage for the outrageous crime of trying to document the names of the children who died in the primary schools that collapsed in the 2008 earthquake in Sichuan. And then they do him on a trumped-up tax charge. So, so they, they, they really fail to harvest the benefit of what is a vibrant and wonderful culture. When I was at LSE in the late 70s, there were a lot of Chinese students there on, on post-grad, I assume, post-grad. Does that 
aspect of soft power, we think of all the African leaders who came to LSE and other uh, universities um, in the 40s and 50s. Does that, in fact, has that made China more hospitable and aware and friendly towards Britain or the West, or does it make no difference, that kind of educational soft power? It, it, people, people react quite quite not necessarily in a straightforward way to uh, encounters with the West. Um, I mean, 2008, at, in, at, at the time of the Tibetan uprising, um, when nationalist feeling in China was very strong, there was a great perception that the West had misunderstood oh. what was happening in Tibet. And we were dealing then with a, with a generation of students who had been brought mm -hmm. up in what was a specific state project of, of historical narrative of grievance yeah. invented in 1959. Um, and they were, you know, young, enthusiastic, they loved being in London. Yeah. And then suddenly they were confronted with, you know, a challenge to yeah. uh, both their own affection for the West, but also their own nationalism, and, and caused an immense distress. And there, some reacted, you know, very much against the West yeah. at that point. And that, that of course, can happen. Okay. Um, in other, but the other thing that I would point out is that most of the Chinese leadership have made great efforts to educate their own children sure. in the West and to secure passports for them, just in case it all collapses. So, you know, there, there is ambivalence in all this. I, I, yes, uh, um, ambivalence from me as a, a head, having... Uh, some of those Chinese children. Now, if I was to have a co-head, uh, I wouldn't choose anybody else in the world than Claire Fox, uh, who is going to tell me when it's 6.30, because I don't have um, a working watch with me. So can you tell me when it's 6.30? And can we queue up the first film, please? And just, we're going to have two short films. Let's take the first one now. And then over to you for questions. Last year, Russia basically criminalized being gay, saying it's okay to be gay, carrying anything in writing, saying it's okay to be gay. So as a lesbian, imagine not only my surprise, my utter joy to find out that these may be the most fabulous Olympics ever. One of the best examples has got to be the official Sochi gloves. They're white gloves, they have rainbow fingers the international gay pride symbol, right there in the gloves. So there's this picture posted by the Canadian bobsled team. You've got shirtless men with beards in their underwear crammed into something generally phallic shaped. There's figure skating. I mean figure skating, where men dance around on ice and if they're paired with women, they're usually throwing them away from them. Then there's this from the Canadian government. They've made this incredibly fabulous video showing that the Olympics, maybe all along, have been a little bit gay. I love the absurdity of all this. It shows how impossible it is to de-gay anything in our world. Because gay people are everywhere. We're part of society, just like we're part of the Olympics. Thank you. Question. First question, can we have some lights on the audience? No question immediately. Can we have the second clip while they're thinking of a question? We'll come back to you in just a second. Let's take the second clip, and then we've got them both out of the way. This clip's a bit more serious. It figures Malala. What was it that you were thinking before all of this? What was your, you know, your life about in terms of education, in terms of being prepared to defy the very violent opposition that you were facing? At that time, when we were facing terrorism in SWAT, and it especially in 2009, 
the radio mullah, which we call him, he announced on radio that from the 15th of January 2009, no girl is allowed to go to school. No girls to school. No girl is allowed to go to school. And if she goes, then you know what we can do. That was his threat. <coughs> what they did, they used to flog girls. They used to flog women. They also slaughtered people in the squares of Mingora. They treated people like animals. And they did bomb blasts in mosques. They did not even respect the mosques. At that time, they blasted more than 400 schools. And in the whole province of Khaybar Pakhtunkhwa, they have blasted 1,500 schools. Now you can imagine how much education is affected in, in Pakistan and in Swat. At that time, I did not want to be silent because I had to live in that situation forever. And it was a better idea because otherwise they were going to kill us. So, there was a question up over here. First question, can't, can we see the lights up? Uh, can, can we see the second hands up, please, just to get ready? Okay, do, do come ahead. Okay, um, I'm talking in the 500th anniversary year of the Battle of Bannockburn, and 700 years after the Battle of Flodden, five, sorry, the other way around, 700th yeah, after okay. Bannockburn, 500th after Flodden last year. Is soft power from England gonna keep Scotland in the United Kingdom? Yeah. Uh, and, and I speak as a Welshman. Okay, I'm going to have uh, a quick response, uh, very quick response from everybody coming from, from Matthew. Um, well, I hope so, because I think uh, fragmentation of markets uh, sitting in, in where I do at the moment is a, is a bad thing in general. Okay, so, so one, yes. Um, I wish we could have a, a discussion with Scotland which was about positive, the positive sense of why we should be together rather than the negative the sense of why Scotland can, can't be alone. And the answer is yes, if we actually have that conversation, we can stay together. OK, Harvey? Of course, of course we need to stay together. It's quite ludicrous that, um, that Scotland wants to be completely independent because, it's, in fact, it's the issue is the other way around. They are independent, and yet we're dependent on them in our parliament in London for voting. So it's an anathema, the whole discussion that's going on at the moment. We should chuck them out let them get on with it. <laughs> Do they have great bands in Scotland? Sometimes. Okay, Helena. Proud Scot, very much so, but I still want us to stay together. I can't call myself a unionist because it has bad connotations for me as an Irish Catholic immigrant in Scotland, um, but uh, I definitely want us to stay together, but I'd like the conversation to be different because it sounds like a stick has been shaken at Scotland and they're being told how um, pathetic they will be if we uh, detach from each well, other, right. and they should be told that actually we've built liberal democracy over 300 years and the rule of law, and we should stick together and, uh, and continue to be a beacon to the rest of the world. Isabel, thank Very you. Good. Uh, also, as Scott, well, I think I think certainly. I mean, I'd like to see it tried. Uh, it hasn't really been tried. I think the the um, the, the, the most recent threat was that the financial institutions yeah. would have to leave Scotland if if the vote went uh, went for independence. Uh, the idea that Scotland wouldn't have to put up with the Royal Bank of Scotland anymore strikes me as a rather wonderful thought. You know, <laughs> it, it would be our parting gift. <laughs> wasn't it that Scotland over England in 1603 rather than the other way around? That, yes, well, yes. So shouldn't England okay. be detaching? England should be allowed to, uh, to, to have right. its independence, yeah. Th th thank you for introducing uh, Scotland. Uh, and questions? Yes, there's someone down here. Uh, there's 
the community have other, other hands up. Marvellous. We're getting lots of questions. Do we have two mics or one mic? Um, if, if the lady here, or gentleman here, can go, and then there is Yasmin in the front row here with another mic, please. Okay, fine. Yep, go ahead. Tell us who you are. Or did you just want to play with the mic? Yes, uh, Hello. It's yes. nice, it's nice, isn't it? It feels great. Uh, Susanna Taverne, uh, and a very important source of soft power that hasn't been mentioned is the World Service, now uh, funded by the BBC and therefore coming out of every licence fee payers uh, amount uh, at a time when the licence fee is frozen and effectively contracting. Uh, so how far should the BBC go uh, in continuing to um, support and extend the soft power of the World Service? Okay. Um, Harvey, are you going to come in on that one? Um, I personally believe that currently the BBC is a complete basket case. It doesn't know whether it's coming or going in which direction or other. <coughs> I think the BBC is the best one of the best institution principles in the world. It needs to get its act together back again. It needs to stay in the position that it is, that it's funded by the people of this country to disseminate correct information in the world, but it has to unblock some biasness that it has with inside it in terms of news. Such as? Well, obviously, in terms of, uh, of news... In the Middle East and in other territories, it has a, a strange attitude towards it. And we now have the issue of, of people that they're hiring and their biasness towards either the left or the right, currently to the left. And I think they need to unblock that. They need to be independent. They are a, a massive voice okay. around the world and they need to stay there. If you were properly. chairman, what would you... What, if you were chairman, how would you change it? Chair, what would you do? I'd clear out 99% of the middle run of the BBC and concentrate on programmes, programmers, the best journalists, the best news editors are not politically correct ones. I, 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 Harvey, I love you dearly, but you see this crap about the BBC being biased in regard to the Middle East. It is just not true. It really isn't true. You know, um, most of the time, what we get about the Middle East is, in fact, um, um, you know, pretty skewered in terms of being very, very much supportive of the Israeli state, as indeed I think it should be. However, we hear very little about the lives that are having to be led by Palestinians. So I'm not prepared to hear that, no, no, that it's I'm all, not, you I'm know... Not, I'm not specifically talking about that. I'm talking generally about the Middle East. And but I mean, I think but I mean it... you really think that the BBC is absolutely chock-a-block full of lefties and that that's being promulgated? It's no, just not, no, I just no, 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 I don't. I'm making, I'm making a point that the BBC is a vital organ to the yeah. world Can and I... has been yeah, and should you... be. I'm saying it's, it's got itself into a mess. Yeah, I, I... I just Please. want to talk about the World Service because I think the World Service is one of the great institutions that we have in, in terms of our relationships around the world. And the idea that we're not supporting it well financially is a complete madness as far as I'm concerned. But it's also true of the British Council, and it's hard for Martin to say this. I had a, a wonderful experience of six years of chairing the British Council. And the British Council does fabulous work, people-to-people -people stuff. You know, all during the, the business when the world was furious with Britain for supporting America in the Iraq, 
Iraq war, um, we continued doing work in places where people were angry with Britain, but because of the people-to-people -people stuff, the students coming to Britain to study, the business of, of, of cultural exchange around the arts, around painters, around musicians, all that stuff kept good relations going, and it made the trust thing still keep alive. Okay, if we had angry Mr. Wolf here, he'd say, what's your evidence for saying that about the World Service? Angry Martin Mr. Wolf, angry Mr. Wolf, I'd like to throttle personally. <laughs> but, uh, uh, and uh, so, so I wish he were here. Um, but, um, I mean, angry Mr. Wolf would say, why should we spend public money on this? Because actually, it's one of the things that Britain's been great at, and I think America has been less good at, which is having proper grown-up conversations with the world. I think, I think the other yeah. aspect of this, Helena, which is really, really important, is that people around the world are able to distinguish the actions of a country and the actions of a government. Mm -hmm. And I think that soft power is about a people-to-people. -people. It's about engaging with people overseas. It's not about a government-to-government -government engagement. And that's where the... the you know, clearly, I think the British Council is great at this, but the BBC World Service is fantastic at this. And the greatest problem, actually, we've got with the BBC's absorption into the, the mainstream uh, BBC is not actually funding, um, the sums of money are, are sort of comes on the table as far as the BBC is concerned. But it's actually, if we start trying to pro project and, and uh, uh, transmit news internationally as if it is domestic news, that's the danger. And that will be a real problem and for it's us. The shrinking, it's the shrinking. It's the shrinkage of, 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 of it, places. It, it, is this a question on, into the on, British, yeah. on the World Service, lady there? OK, anybody want to say anything about the World Service? Yes, Marianne. Speak up. Uh, and and, and uh, we'll come to Yasmin in a second. Uh, and just, Marianne, just belt it out. You've got that okay. big voice. Well, just very briefly, I, I was a presenter on the BBC World Service for two years. Uh, and just to let Harvey know that we tried so scrupulously to remain neutral. I can't tell you how much effort went in to trying to be politically neutral. And we would pore over a single word in a script. Are we allowed to say this? Will this sound biased? I mean, really, we took it very, very seriously. OK, anybody else on the British Council point of view? Gentlemen, there just belted out. Okay, Isabel, uh, Twitter or the World Service has um, more influence, not the most of two. Um, well, they're yeah. influential, but they're, but they're different <laughs> things. You know, got to get it in. I mean, you know, I don't think that that in terms of of, of British influence in the world, Twitter is is no, it's effective. But if you're talking about, you know. The World Service, World Service, World Service, Harvey. World Service, yep. by far. World Service, but yep. we've got to start using it. It's definitely World Service. Twitter. I want to make a point about Twitter, and we saw this very clearly in the Egyptian Revolution. There was a huge uh, sort of uh, excitement about the role Twitter played. Yep. Twitter played that role because there was an editorial mind behind it, and the editorial mind behind it was Al Jazeera, mm. uh, which was creating the content which Twitter was then disseminating. Twitter is a dissemination channel. It's not uh, a, a source of... of uh, of that kind of editorial direction. If you look at, okay, if you a, look a, at the volume point, of tweets, and we looked at this very closely, if you look at the volume of tweets that were happening at the time, they were directly linked to Al Jazeera stories. It, it's a very, very clear relationship. Final word from the, pan, for, for, from the floor there. Do you want to come back on that? Well, I, I think it's too big of a question. Okay. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> uh, yes, let's, let's have a little question now that we can handle. <laughs> Just, I mean, I completely believe in soft power, and I grew up in colonial Africa, and the British Council, BBC, were completely fundamental to the way most of us grew up and what our thoughts and our values. 
And it was a great time, actually, to be in Africa during the Cold War, because then soft power was being used by both sides. So actually, Africa benefited from that soft power. But at the moment... Except when they caused wars to happen yes, in Africa, which was... The schools and scholarships <laughs> and bridges. Um, but what I think at the moment is happening, and this is frightening, is that there are things that are changing in the world at the moment. In my view, in a, my very strong view, because of what Saudi Arabia and Qatar are funding, that the influence of these two countries, not only around the world, but here, is so dangerous and damaging, and this soft power is no match for it. Malil, Mal, the, the story of this wonderful girl from Pakistan, yeah. they hate her in Pakistan. They hate this schoolgirl who survived, yeah. which shows, because she's now accepted and adored by the West. So I wonder whether we're, we have the, what it takes to fight this other enemy. Uh, uh, say, I, say I believe, <laughs> Malala, yep, quick, Javi. Not just Malala, who is quite an incredible person, and I've spent some time with her and, and her father, who's equally an interesting yes. character. Um, I think the best example I can give about the dilemma of soft power is that to some extent soft power happens naturally, whereas hard power is contrived and falls. Soft power often comes out of a natural experience that's happening, a cultural exchange, some music or art of something of that description, and that spreads, and that's the positive side of soft power. Uh, Isabel, is quick comment on that. There's another kind of the kind of soft power that Yasmin is is is, is talking about. The, the 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 number of madrasas funded by Saudi money yeah. in the first U.S. war yeah. against Afghanistan went from three hundred to seven thousand. That's a really effective bit of soft power, and it, it is extremely negative for uh, for any any of the kind of clash of Western values with 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 uh, with Islam. But I well, think indeed. Okay. The, the, you know, I think the problem Harvey has, um, I don't agree with you, it's, this is not a, 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 by, a, a happenstance. Okay, there, is a real, there is a real fight going on in soft power terms and it is getting much, much more serious. Okay, I'm going to just ask uh, for questions on soft power from people with loud, with hard voices. Uh, just make the points, I'm going to finish off with Claire Fox in the front row, uh, who is looking at me very scarily on time. Yes, lady there. Question, please. government rather than national government or individuals to, to link up and have soft power. My example was that in Hackney we struck a strategic alliance with a tiny part of Beijing which was, like us, the victim as well as the host of the Olympic Games. Is there a role for local to local government in soft power? Thank you. Yes. And, yep, lady up there. Um, one of the things that was interesting that Martin highlighted yesterday um, was the need to sort of have a shift in mindset um, as, you know, forces sort of grow in the East, as, as um, the center of power sort of shifts. Um, and I'm just wondering how this shift in mindset and our ability to see how when we think we're being objective, perhaps that should be redefined, how that will have a role, Got that. you think, uh, I'm going to take a loud, a loud question at the back, and then the microphone's going to come down here to Claire Fox, and then the panel's going to have a, just a quick final go each. So loud, loud person in the back, please. I hope you're not the angry person also. Having to exercise soft power, because we've talked about oh. art and we've talked about state, but not business or brands. Uh, in British, British brands, uh, uh, as you know, taking the point about the difference between 
hard and soft power being that it is uh, not coercive, uh, but that it's collaborative. Uh, okay, and final question down here, Claire. Um, one of the earlier sessions today was about not being clear about whether we know what British values are. So when we're talking about when we're talking about exporting these values or using soft power to influence, isn't one of the problems that there's a crisis of what is British or even Western values? And one of the difficulties that I have when I talk to Chinese students or Indian students is when I talk about a free society and maybe want to contrast it with a less free society, I then remember that in Britain, civil liberties are chipped away daily and that free speech doesn't exist so readily in the UK. So isn't that a serious problem for soft power if actually we can't look them in the face and actually say, we are the free society? Surely okay. that means they lecture us. Okay, and, and Claire wasn't stopping herself there on time, but she knows that the time is up. So Isabel, just 10, 15 seconds, final comment answering all those four questions. <laughs> <laughs> Shifting mindset, I don't know. I, I do th I agree with Claire, you have to live the values, and that's actually the best kind of soft power. It's the credibility, it's the authenticity, and it's the defence of the values. I think, actually, we do know, in general terms, what British values are, you know, rule of law, justice, human rights. Those, you know, I think we would all agree that those are values that we would wish to see perhaps defended more vigorously than they have been in recent years. Helena, picking up one or two points. Well, exactly. Um, I, I think, like Isabel, I think it's very important that we kind of, if we want to have a, a kind of mutuality of, uh, in, 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 in relationships of substance, then we have to live by the things that we like to claim are our own. And I think they are being ch chipped away at, but they have to be reasserted. And I think the rule of law, respect for human rights and civil liberties, absolutely are associated in the minds of people around the world with us. But as we um, betray those ideals, then of course we, that will affect our way of being able to work with other parts of the world. But I just want to say one thing. A friend of mine wrote a book called how the Beatles rocked the Kremlin. And it was about music, actually, being a subversive thing in places that are authoritarian and totalitarian. And I, I think that all of this stuff matters. And it's all small pieces, but it's a mosaic that actually can create real change. Harvey, uh, I know your concerts don't always finish on time, but could you? Well, Live Aid did. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think, just going back to my first comment that music is is a great example of of soft power that actually works and i do genuinely believe that if you if you force if soft power becomes too contrived it then becomes hard power and people don't believe in it they don't trust it and i think that's a really important tenet just a very quick example of real soft power um i took eric clapson to africa uh, we are doing a concert in Maputo. They're in the middle of a civil war. I said, the only, time, the only way we're going to play this concert is you've got to get both sides in the stadium to turn up and behave themselves for the weekend. And we literally had our concert. We had the government on one side of the stadium. We had the rebels on the other side of the stadium. They had a fabulous time for a whole weekend. Unfortunately, on Monday morning, they went back to beating the shit out of each other. But at least they learned they had a common thing that they could enjoy, and that's music. And the Mandela concert, accelerating those concerts. No, think about that one. Well, the, yeah. the, simply, the, the power of music has been proven, as, and I'm proud to have been part of that push on power. The power of music still, even today, and has been in the past, is it can disseminate... Um, uh, messages across the world that people 
across the board, genuinely will support. We just did a big show last year about women's issues and women's rights across the, the world, and we had 200 million hits on the website to follow up from a concert that we actually did in London of how people can be empowered, can deal with soft power, and can take that up. Martin. Um, just dealing with the, the local authority issue, or the local government issue, I think it's really important that we have people in this country who are able to engage with others around the world, and that means a, a shift in the way we educate people, giving people international dimension to their education, the not just languages, but actually enabling people to actually move around the world with comfort and have a proper engagement, and I don't think we do that well enough at the moment. I think the second, my favourite statistic, a statistic of the week for you, in China, there are 87 million members of the Communist Party of China. There are 107 million members of the Manchester United Fo uh, Football Supporters Club. Does that mean Manchester United... Well, it's United not really helping Manchester United this season very much, is it? Yeah. A couple of quick thoughts. Brown's uh, local government, and so, yes, absolutely. I think there's a role in, in soft power projection for more or less everyone. And I think, coming back to this, Claire's question about values... Um, one of the beauties of soft power is that it doesn't uh, come from a single source. I think there is a commonality of value set underpinning what comes out from Britain, um, but there are undoubtedly differences within that. Free speech is part of it. Some of Harvey's acts uh, performing overseas have been profoundly antipathetic to the British government of the day, uh, but it's still been great music and people have turned up and enjoyed it. So you're projecting something in very, very diffuse and different ways... Can you measure its impact, coming back to that? Of course, you can't instantly measure its impact, but over time, you have to believe that it has a positive impact. I think the panel's done amazingly well, not the least those two who only had a couple of hours' notice. Big thanks to all of them. This podcast was produced by Sarah Peters for Editorial Intelligence, with thanks to Vodafone, FT Weekend, CNN, GQ and all the partners and participants who made and make Names Not Numbers possible. Thank you for listening.